everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. I'm Zach. And today we are thrilled to have Erwin Chemerinsky with us. Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean and the Jesse H. Choper Distinguished Professor of Law at Berkeley Law at the University of California, Berkeley, teaching constitutional law and First Amendment law, among other things. He's the author of 10 books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court, Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable, and Free Speech on Campus with Howard Gilman. In January 2017, National Jurist Magazine again named Dean Chemerinsky as the most influential person in legal education in the United States. His forthcoming title, We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century, is set to be published this November. Thank you so much for joining us, Dean Chemerinsky. My pleasure. So to get started, we like to ask all of our guests this concept of inflection points, or points where you felt you needed to pivot in your personal or professional life. We're wondering if you could share one moment with us. If you had talked to me at any time during college, I would have told you I wanted to be a high school teacher. I took all the classes in college and did my student teaching to become a certified high school social studies teacher. In fact, unless it expires, I think I am still a certified high school social studies teacher in the state of Illinois. But at the beginning of my senior college, I decided that I wanted to go to law school. I was very much inspired by the civil rights lawyers of the 1950s and the 1960s. I thought that law was the most powerful tool for social change. And so at the last possible moment to take the LSAT, to be able to go the following year to law school, I signed up and I took the LSAT and decided to go to law school. And I've never regretted that choice ever since, though I think I would have tremendously enjoyed being a high school teacher. So you wanted to be a high school teacher when you were in college, and now you're the dean of a law school, and you've been an educator your whole life. Um, what is it about teaching or what is it about having students because um, you still teach, right, As even as dean, both at Berkeley and when you were at Irvine. Um, what is it about teaching that you really love or, or are you passionate about? I do still teach as recently as from 8.40 to 9.50 this morning. I was teaching <laughs> criminal procedure. And as soon as Wednesday morning, I'll do it again. Um, I love teaching. It's still my favorite thing to do. And so I can justify teaching in the sense it lets me get to know the students in a non-administrative role. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to help students understand the law and think about the law in a critical way. For me as a law professor, to help prepare them for the practice of law. I love teaching college students when I was at the University of Southern California and at Duke and then at Irvine. I always taught an undergraduate class as well as in the law school, and I look forward to doing that again in Berkeley. And I think in terms of being an administrator, we all want to have the sense we're making a difference with our lives. I've seen how much difference deans or university presidents can make. I've seen deans who are terrific, who transformed the institution in a positive way, and I've seen deans who weren't so good. And so this is my chance to try to really make a difference in an institution. So on the, on the topic of teaching, um, you've talked a lot about the First Amendment, especially in, in recent years. And... Um, I'm wondering, what's something you think that people don't really understand about the First Amendment or even the Constitution in general that you wish they did? That the Constitution applies only to the government and to government actors. The Constitution doesn't apply to private entities. So a public university has to comply with the First Amendment. A private university doesn't. A public university has to provide due process of law before it would suspend or expel a student. A private university doesn't have to comply with the Constitution in due process of law. Now, on the uh, 
topic of free speech, you've said before that, well, one thing that comes up a lot is the idea of speech as violence. And that's something that um, it's a um, sort of equivalence that college students or people make um, that is a justification for limiting speech. Now, you said that the law is settled on the matter, but in terms of what you think the law should be, do you find the equivalence of speech to physical violence convincing? Speech is not physical violence. Speech might cause physical violence, and when it is speech that is causing physical violence under certain circumstances, that speech can be punished. But I think it's important to distinguish the words from the actions that follow from them. Do you think, do you find, um, yeah, do you believe, or do you, yeah, do you find credible the idea that um, people are emotionally harmed to the point that it is the same thing as if someone were to punch them or to kick them? There's no doubt that people can be hurt deeply by speech. Speech can have both positive and negative effects. If speech had no impact, we wouldn't protect it as a fundamental right. We wouldn't exalt it. And we would be naive to think that the effects of speech are only positive and never negative. And there's no doubt that words can wound, words can cause people to be so upset that it's like a physical pain, but there's still a difference between words and a punch. So as you've said, you've said that hate speech, hate, hate speech is protected speech. Um, and also you've, you've noted that uh, hate speech laws or codes, um, particularly one example at the University of Michigan, um, are often used against minorities that they should have protected. Um, why do you think that is, and, and do you think there's a, a way around that, or do you think it's just part of, part of the deal? Hate speech codes are often written very broadly. No one's ever found a way of writing a narrow hate speech code. The result of that is that those administering the hate speech code have a great deal of discretion. What we know is that so often when discretion exists, it's used to the detriment of those of color. Are there any examples of this, like in from a university in the U.S. or somewhere around the world? Well, find it both in the United States and throughout the world. Mention the example of the University of Michigan. Between the time it adopted its hate speech code and when a federal district court declared it unconstitutional, every enforcement action sought under it was against African-American Latino students. When England adopted its first hate speech law, the initial prosecution under it was against a Zionist group with the prosecutor saying Zionists are regarded as a form of racism. You can go country by country through Europe and there's hate speech laws. So often they're used against the minorities, the very people that we're seeking to protect. Um, just to take a step back, um, you there's a lot of areas of law. You said you're teaching right now criminal procedure, but you're a noted expert in First Amendment law. Um, did you just fall into that or did you choose that? And if you chose it, why did you, like what, what drew you to that and how does that fit into your sort of broader mission? From the very beginning, I've been teaching in the area of constitutional law. It's what I was most interested in in law school. I took every constitutional law course that was offered when I was in law school. It's what I was doing when I was practicing law before I went into teaching. It's, I'm still a practicing lawyer. It's still the cases I handle are constitutional cases. Now, there are many different parts of the Constitution. We're focusing on the First Amendment. In my criminal procedure class, I'm focusing on the Fourth Amendment about searches and seizures and the Fifth Amendment about privilege against self-incrimination. Last spring, I taught the basic constitutional law class that looks at things like separation of powers and federalism and equal protection. 
So these are just all different aspects of constitutional law. So uh, one of your recent books that came out in 2014, as we mentioned, The Case Against the Supreme Court. Could you just summarize for us your main argument against the Supreme Court, as especially could come as shocking for some many listeners who think of the Supreme Court as one of the most revered institutions in our politics today? The thesis of that book is that the Supreme Court has often failed, often at the most important times, often on the most important issues through American history. So I take as an example race, where through most of American history, the Supreme Court has had a dismal record with regard to race. I think at times of crisis, when we most want the court to stand up for the Constitution, these are things like wartime, and the court's had a dismal record about protecting rights during times of crisis. So just a, as a follow-up to that, um, the Supreme Court as an institution obviously has has had responsibility for that, but it's also been the specific courts, as you mentioned in some of your writings, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, and then even um, I think you've criticized Brown versus Board and, and Chief Justice Warren for not going far enough in that decision. Um, how does that uh, kind of jibe with the institutions, the other institutions we think of, like uh, the presidency and the Congress, who've also made problematic decisions? One example that comes to mind is is the Roosevelt presidency and the executive order for Japanese internment. So why don't we blame we, – we seem to kind of blame President Roosevelt and not the power of you know executive orders for that. Um, so how do you see that kind of connecting? There's plenty of blame to go around for something like the Japanese internment. President Roosevelt should be blamed for promulgating such an executive order. The Supreme Court should be blamed for not declaring it unconstitutional. I especially want the court to be there to enforce the Constitution in times of crisis. The Constitution is meant to be an anti-majoritarian document. What makes the Constitution different from all other laws is it's so difficult to change the Constitution. And yet, for instance, with regard to Japanese evacuation and internment, in Korematsu versus the United States, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the government. So I'm not making a comparative judgment. Perhaps I could write a book, The Case Against the President, The Case Against Congress. I was making a point about the Supreme Court. And I'm not making the claim that the Supreme Court always fails. I'm instead saying that it has often failed and often in the most important times in American history. Now, when um, the justices face an important issue, a hard issue, um, as they do so often, you have um, criticized justices um, such as Chief Justice Roberts who say that they only call, quote-unquote, balls and strikes. Um, can you expand on that criticism? I think John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh more recently should be ashamed for trying to say that justices on the Supreme Court are just like umpires. Umpires are enforcing the rules of baseball. The Supreme Court is creating the rules. Let me give you an easy example. Constitutional law almost always involves balancing of competing interests. No rights are absolute. So in the freedom of speech area, we're talking about is there a compelling interest for restricting speech? In the context of affirmative action, is diversity in the classroom a compelling interest? With regard to same-sex marriage, does the government have a sufficiently important interest to gays and lesbians from marrying? It's always a form of balancing. Umpires are never balancing. So the views of the justices are crucial as to how they balance. The views of the umpires shouldn't matter at all. And so the implication, and, and your next book is called um, A Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. You are a proponent of the living constitution. Um, is it fair to take you to mean that we should um, support, quote, unquote, a living constitution? The constitution always has been, hopefully always will be, a living constitution. 
Otherwise, it would be absurd for us to be governed by a document that was written in 1787 for an agrarian slave society. I'll give you an easy example. The Constitution in Article 2 refers to the president and vice president with the pronoun he. The framers unquestionably intended that only men could be president and vice president. Does that mean it's unconstitutional to elect a woman as president or vice president until the Constitution is amended? Or another example, the same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. Does that mean that segregation of schools is unconstitutional until the Constitution is amended? The Constitution has to be a living document. This isn't a new insight. Back in McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819, the Supreme Court and John Marshall Finn said, we must never forget that it's a constitution we're expounding. Constitution meant to be adapted and endured for ages to come. So if you want like justice to be um, to to kind of interpret the constitution for the modern day, and you endorse judicial review and think that um, the constitution should be anti-majoritarian, in like how do you um, in what ways would the judicial branch be distinct from the legislative or the executive branch? And how do you, what role, I guess, do you see the court and the judicial branch playing in that balance? The role of the court is to interpret the Constitution, for the justice to give the best meaning to those words they can and apply it to current problems. There's an enormous difference between the president, Congress on the one hand, and the courts on the other. The president and Congress have to run for election and the president at least once can run for re-election. Members of Congress can run as often as they want for re-election. Justices on the Supreme Court and federal judges are there for life. It's perfectly fine to go and lobby the president or members of Congress, but you can never go lobby Supreme Court justices or federal judges. It's fine for members of Congress to trade votes. Say, I'll vote for this for you if you'll vote for that for me. It's log rolling. But we never hear of that happening with regard to courts. So what we want courts to do is to engage in a process of reasoned elaboration of the meaning of the Constitution. We don't ask that out of the other branches of government. So at the same time, you mentioned, you know, we don't ask uh, our courts to do log rolling, engage in those types of practice. I think of my home state of Illinois, your home state as well, and the fact that in Illinois, we do elect our justices, and they are an elected position, a political position in that regard. And um, I know you've worked on certain cases in Illinois with the Supreme Court um, very recently. Um, could you just speak about that and then also maybe expound a little bit upon um, the notion, should justices be elected? I don't like the idea of elected judges. I worry that when a judge has to face election or recall election or retention election, the judge will end up deciding cases to please the voters. Otto Kaus served on the California Supreme Court for a long time, and he said that for a judge, having an election is like having a crocodile in your bathtub. You never forget that it's there. There have been many studies done that compare how capital cases, death penalty cases, are treated in courts where the justices face election versus those that they don't. In states where justices face some form of electoral review, death sentences are very rarely overruled. In states where the justices never face electoral review, death sentences are much more likely to be overruled. That said, there's no mechanism for eliminating electoral elected judges. States that have elected judges aren't going to change it. The voters aren't going to vote themselves out of power. It's just a reality we have. The case I think you're referring to in Illinois was a case involving State Farm, the auto insurance company. 
in the late 1990s, a jury in Illinois found that State Farm had directed the repair of cars with defective parts. And the jury awarded $1 billion in damages against State Farm. The Illinois Court of Appeals upheld the liability and the damage judgment. State Farm, it's alleged, through a variety of different subterfuges, spent a great deal of money to get their ideal justice, justice elected the Illinois Supreme Court to overrule the judgment against State Farm. To make a long story short, with that Justice Carmeier in place, the Illinois Supreme Court overturned the damage judgment. The plaintiffs, many years later, did a great deal of research, and some people came forward, and they felt that they could prove that State Farm had engaged in a conspiracy to try to win this election and take over control of the court. And the plaintiffs sued State Farm in, we could call it corruption act, and technically called a RICO suit, where there's triple damages. So it was a suit for $3 billion. And the pretrial proceedings have gone on for many years, and it was scheduled to go to trial last month in September of 2018. And the day before the trial was supposed to start, the case settled, and State Farm paid $250 million. State Farm denies any wrongdoing. The plaintiffs continue to believe there's wrongdoing, but the case has settled, and settled for a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> so one of the plans that you... So as we just saw, the confirmation hearings for a lifelong appointment can be very brutal, um, very controversial. You've put forth a plan um, that's supported by Rick Perry, or as, is the same plan as Rick Perry, rather, um, that would uh, set term limits of 18 years with justice rotating every um, two years in and off the court. Um, what sort of um, change do you think this would make to the confirmation process that we just saw and also to the court and, and its decisions? I do favor 18-year non-renewable term limits for Supreme Court justices. It is the same plan that Rick Perry, a conservative Republican, has endorsed. In fact, I found people all along the political spectrum support this idea. I don't think this would change the confirmation process. I have other ideas to change the confirmation process, but I think it would serve other benefits. Life expectancy, thankfully, is a lot longer today than it was in 1787. Clarence Thomas was 43 years old when he was confirmed for the Supreme Court in 1991. I don't want this to sound partisan. Elena Kagan was 50. John Roberts was 50. Neil Gorsuch was 49. Brett Kavanaugh is 53. If Clarence Thomas stays on the Supreme Court until he's 90 years old, the age was just as John Paul Stevens retired, he will be a justice for 47 years. If Kagan and Roberts are there until they're 90, they'll be 40 years. That's too much power in a single person's hands for too long a period of time. Also, too much now depends on the accent of history for when vacancies occur. Jimmy Carter had no vacancies to fill in the Supreme Court in his four years as president. Richard Nixon had four in his first two years. Donald Trump's had two in his first two years. 18-year non-renewable terms would mean that every president gets to fill two seats on the Supreme Court. Um, to pivot away from the Supreme Court now, we, I want to ask you a question about law school, and especially about um, your interest in, and it seems like from what we've um, researched, your sort of calling to public service. You graduated from law school from Harvard and went for went to work for the Attorney General first, then a, then a small public interest law firm. Um, and while a lot of people express interest in doing that as they enter law school, the majority go to corporate law firms. Um, what sort of changes or what sort of um, motivations do you think um, would 
be needed to incentivize more people to go into this sort of public service work? My goal as dean is to facilitate the career path that each student wants for himself or herself. For those students who decide they want to go to big law, we should facilitate that. For those who want to go to government, we should facilitate that. For those who want to do judicial clerkships, we should facilitate that. And for those who want to go into public interest law, we should facilitate that. I think one of the hardest things for students now is the tremendous amount of debt, the student loans that students graduate with. And so I think we need to have, and we do at Berkeley, a very robust loan forgiveness program. We need to have fellowships for after law school to facilitate students going to public interest work because often there aren't jobs to launch a public interest career without such fellowships. I wish that we could find a way of lowering tuition. It's not just a problem of law schools. As you know, it's a problem <laughs> of all higher education. But I also hope that in light of the high cost, we can find ways of giving more scholarships to students, including students who are interested in pursuing careers in public service. So we're now in the wake of the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh um, in an uproarious and rancorous, uh, hotly debated um, confirmation process. Um, now that he is on the court and sworn in, um, what role do you think he will play on the court, and how do you see the Supreme Court shifting, the Roberts Court shifting now with his presence on it? I think Brett Kavanaugh is going to be a very conservative justice. I think that's why Republicans really didn't want to focus on the allegations of sexual assault. I think it's why Democrats would have probably in the same numbers opposed Brett Kavanaugh, even without the allegations of sexual assault. I think that all of the senators, I think everyone agrees that Kavanaugh is going to be a more conservative justice than Anthony Kennedy. In terms of the implications of that, I think we'll see it with regard to abortion, affirmative action, gay and lesbian rights civil rights more generally, punishments in criminal cases. Um, so the last question we ask all of our guests, um, and remember that this is a podcast focused on students, undergrad students mainly, um, what is your personal definition of success? And then what sort of advice would you give to students who are looking to pursue that definition for themselves? The latter is easier for me than the former. The latter is to follow your passion, that you're getting an incredible education here, and to use it to do the things you care most about. I hope that'll include for all of the students things that will help make our society and our world a better place. In terms of success, I mean, I give a great deal of weight to trying to do things to make society, the world, a better place. Um, I think if I look at my life, the thing that I'm most proud of is my four children, my two grandchildren. And so think of the success of my life in terms of them. I think of the success of my life in terms of the students who I've taught in 39 years as a professor and now as a law school dean. Um, I hope in the end that when my life ends, people say I made the world a better place because I was here. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you so much, Dean Chemerinsky, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you for having me.